It's time to roll up those joints, pack those bowls, and fire up those nails. Because you're listening to Blazin' with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. All right, and welcome to another edition of Blazin'. As always, I'm your host, Bobby Black. You know, as most of you probably know, I am currently the West Coast editor of Greenleaf Magazine. Uh, and if any of you out there have seen the latest issue of Greenleaf that's out now, it's a special glass issue. Uh, inside, you'll find my exclusive feature uh, of the new glass art documentary film entitled Vagabong, Amer- The American Pipe Dream. Well, my guest uh, later today is the director of that film, Mr. J.D. Maplesden, who will be giving us uh, the inside scoop on what it's about and how it all came together. That's coming up just after the break. But first, as always, it's time for a quick recap of the week's gnarliest news nugs. This is The Burndown. Burning through the smoke and mirrors of the news headlines, this is The Burndown. All right, first up in The Burndown this week, we begin in the Pacific Northwest in Washington, to be specific, where researchers at Washington State University began a new study this week aimed at developing a breathalyzer that detects marijuana. A group of lucky 21 and over stoner volunteers will actually be paid $30 an hour for the first hour and $10 for every additional hour after to smoke weed. (laughs) A pretty good gig if you can get it. Uh, The study breaks down something like this. The volunteers are given a blood test and a mouth swab. Then they are sent out to purchase marijuana at a licensed shop and take it home to smoke it. They're then picked up by taxi because we, of course, wouldn't want them driving under the influence. And they're brought back to the hospital for a secondary round of testing, uh, as well as partaking in a standard sobriety test conducted by local law enforcement. Uh, Don't worry, they are not going to be arrested afterwards. (laughs) The month-long study will conclude in mid-June. And right next door in Oregon, uh, in an effort to help boost cannabis tourism, the city of Portland has joined with cannabis businesses in lobbying for a bill that would allow consumption of cannabis at licensed lounges akin to tobacco smoking patios. Uh, you know, this is a similar, uh, there's been a lot of stories about this, uh, in different states. Uh, we're starting to see a push towards licensing establishments for smoking, which is good to see. Um, originally, the measure in Oregon allowed for consumption at temporary events and at indoor lounges, but after encountering some opposition, the events provision was dropped, and now only smoking on patios with at least one open wall will be permitted. Uh, these licenses would only be issued in cities or counties that pass ordinances that allow them. Proponents of the bill say that providing safe, regulated places to smoke would reduce the smoking in public places like sidewalks, vehicles, and parks. Opponents, on the other hand, argue that it could expose workers at these establishments to, quote, dangerous secondhand smoke. I don't know how dangerous uh, secondhand cannabis smoke is, but okay. Uh, and that it would send the wrong message to children, you know. I'm pretty tired of hearing that uh, line, uh, sending the wrong message to children. You know, uh, the health risks, uh, most of the health risks and gateway theory uh, around surrounding pot have been scientifically disproven. So this message to children seems to be like the last straw that they're clinging to. 
you know, nobody is suggesting, nobody is suggesting that pot be given to children. You know, uh, this is an adult activity. Explain that to your children the same way you explain anything else that adults do, like sex or drinking, and move on. I mean, what message do beer commercials send to children or sexy videos on MTV? I mean, we cannot live our lives as adults worrying about how children are going to interpret or misinterpret what we're doing. And now it's on to the Midwest, where the Ohio Supreme Court Justice and prospective gubernatorial candidate William O'Neill has come out in favor of criminalizing marijuana. In a speech to Wayne County Democratic Party uh, last Friday night, O'Neill said he not only wants to legalize marijuana, but also release all nonviolent marijuana offenders from prison, a move that he claimed would generate an estimated $350 million to combat drug addiction by allowing the Ohio Department of Mental Health, to reopen a network of state hospitals that were closed decades ago. The time has come for new thinking, O'Neill said, treating addiction like the disease it is in the name of compassion. Sounds pretty sensible. He said the Democratic Party needs new ideas in 2018 if it wants to knock Republicans uh, out of control in the Ohio government. If he does run for governor, he'll be already he'll be joining an already crowded field of candidates seeking the office, including three Democratic and four possible Republican challengers. And now we head to New England, where in a follow up to last week, the bill to legalize cannabis in Vermont that we discussed is now on the desk of Republican Governor Phil Scott, who claims he has still undecided about how he wants to proceed. Spokespeople for the governor says he is not philosophically opposed to the legalization, but has expressed reservations regarding certain public health and safety issues related to the bill. The governor now has until Thursday to decide whether to sign or veto it. If he does not act, it will become law automatically. Eli Harrington, cannabis advocate and co-founder of Hedy Vermont, expects inaction to be the most likely outcome. I'll tell you with 80% confidence he won't sign the bill, but will let it become law said uh, Harrington. Historically, he's much more practical than an ideologue. Vetoing the bill would draw negative political attention as opposed to not signing it and not supporting it, but letting it happen. Despite Attorney General Jeff Sessions' threats to go after the cannabis industry in legal states, most people nonetheless see regulated cannabis as an eventuality. The tipping point has happened, Harrington said. Cannabis is building schools, not killing people. Uh, Amen, brother. Amen. Next, we head down to Maryland, where in a unanimous vote Wednesday, the Maryland Medical Cannabis Commission, that's a mouthful, (laughs) granted final approval to a company called Forward Grow to immediately begin cultivating at what is now the state's first licensed grow, coming uh, four long years after marijuana uh, lawmakers legalized cannabis for medical use. Take your time, guys. (laughs) It's not like patients are waiting for that medicine. Um, the state's medical program has run into numerous delays as it struggled to get off the ground, including controversy that regulators failed to take applicants' race into consideration, which is apparently required under state law. Of the 15 companies that were granted preliminary cultivation licenses last August, Forward Grow is the first to earn final approval. The company, which has spent more than $10 million to build the state-of-the-art uh, greenhouse facility, uh, expects the first products, including oils, tinctures, and vapor cartridges, to be available to the nearly 6,500 patients that applied for the program by early this fall. Also in Maryland, uh, this week, Marijuana Business Daily hosted their cannabis business uh, conference and expo this week, just outside the nation's capital. The big topic on everyone's mind was how will the Trump administration's policies affect the burgeoning marijuana industry? 
Uh, although Jeff Sessions and Press Secretary Sean Spicer have signaled potential crackdown on a federal level, there's been no impact on the industry as of yet, as investors and business owners are hopeful that the businessman in chief himself will not want to thwart the gains on what is rapidly becoming the fastest growing segment in our economy. Though revenue projections vary, that growth within the cannabis industry is undeniable. Nearly $1 billion in investment capital has flooded into the budding industry since 2012, uh, and Marijuana Business Daily predicts that it will increase nearly five-fold in the coming year. They also predict cannabis retail sales will hit around $6.1 billion by the end of this year and may reach as high as $68 billion by 2021. That's if recreational and medical cannabis is legalized nationwide. So what are you waiting for, guys? Let's do this. <laughs> and finally, this week on the burndown, number one, we end in the nation's capital where a small bipartisan group of lawmakers is renewing their push to legalize marijuana at a federal level. Yay. Sponsored by Representative Thomas Garrett of Virginia and co-sponsored by 11 other representatives, the ending federal Marijuana Prohibition Act would lift the nation's pot restrictions and allow states to decide individually how to regulate medical and recreational marijuana. Though states like Colorado have already legalized marijuana, they're still technically in violation of federal law, creating a confusing patchwork of pot laws around the country. Garrett, who is a formal, former criminal prosecutor, did not always support car- uh, cannabis reform, but he says he grew tired of creating criminals out of people who otherwise follow the law. Uh, Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii agrees that more than anything else, this is a criminal justice issue. The question before us is not whether you think marijuana use is good or bad or how you feel about the issue, but whether we should be turning people into criminals, she says. Every 42 seconds, someone is arrested for the use or possession of marijuana, turning everyday Americans into criminals and tearing families apart. Prohibitionist crusader and modern-day Harry Anslinger Kevin Sabet, ooh, the arch enemy. <laughs> Uh, has a big surprise come out against the bill saying the marijuana industry is the next big tobacco of our time and history will not look kindly upon those who enabled lobbyists and special interest groups to gain a foothold and putting profit ahead of public health and safety he said well kevin maybe to you this is just about profits and lobbyists but to the rest of us it's not it's about not sending innocent people to prison civil rights is not a special interest We're going to take a quick break now, but stick around because when we come back, we'll be talking with uh, glass artist and film director J.D. Maplesden. Stay tuned. You're listening to Blazin' with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. I'd like to say a few words about our sponsors and my friends at 420 Science. I've known Matt and Gary from 420 Science for over a decade. We've spent a lot of time together at the Cannabis Cups in Amsterdam, the Doobie Awards in their hometown of Austin. They were even at my wedding. And I've always admired their integrity and how they've built 420 Science from the ground up to become the most trusted online head shop. Visit 420science.com slash podcast for an exclusive deal on pipes and more from genuine people who put their customers first. That's 420science.com slash podcast. Equio, New Frontier's cutting-edge big data platform, puts the information and answers you need right at your fingertips in real time to help you more effectively run your cannabis business. Go to www.equio.io to sign up for your free membership today. Again, that's www.equio.io. Run with New Frontier and let us help you conquer the wild. 
Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, offering over 50 strains of top-quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Perps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade. So you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto-flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot home of cannabis champions since 2002. Please check your local, state, and national laws before ordering. The Cannabis World of Tomorrow converges for the first ever Southeast Cannabis Conference and Expo in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, June 9th to the 11th. Register right now at seccexpo.com. TV talk icon Montel Williams, NFL All-Stars Ricky Williams, Marvin Washington, and Kyle Turley lead some of our top-tier panels in industry information, athletics, real estate, technology, medical research, and more. Meet hundreds of vendors and thousands of entrepreneurs at the 2017 Southeast Cannabis Conference and Expo in Fort Lauderdale. Last-minute registration is open now at seccexpo.com. Next to THC and CBD, you can now add CBR to your cannabis vernacular. CBR as in CannabisRadio.com. All right, and welcome back to Blazin'. My guest today is J.D. Maplesden. He's a glass artist from Portland, Oregon, whose new documentary film, Vagabong, The American Pipe Dream, debuted this March in San Francisco. J.D., thanks for Blazin' with us today. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. So this is kind of like a little deja vu for us because uh, I actually sat down with you uh, not too long ago, a few months ago, um, to talk to you about the film uh, for a piece. I did uh, a cover feature for Greenleaf Magazine, but uh, I wanted to speak to you again and get some updates and also, uh, you know, just, just lay it all out for, for my listeners. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, the article you wrote in um, Greenleaf was awesome. Thank you so very much. It's really cool to it, see the layout of it. Cool. You're very welcome. Um, so let's uh, let's start at the beginning and talk a little about you and your background. Um, where are you from, and uh, what uh, what led you to Oregon? Um, I grew up in Northern California, and just I lived a very nomadic life where I hitchhiked a lot and traveled a lot. And I ended up in Post Falls, Idaho, and then ended up in Spokane, Washington, when I was around nineteen or twenty. 
And I was selling glass for four or five different glass artists at that time when I landed in Spokane. And through me selling glass for different artists out of Southern Oregon, out of Portland, and out of Moscow, Idaho, I eventually found someone that gave me my first opportunity to blow glass in 2001. And from there, I lived in Spokane. I started in Spokane. I pretty much taught myself out of a book. I read a book and was a janitor for the first couple of years that I blew glass. And then after that, when I finally made the plunge to make pipes, because I was a little broke, the pendant game wasn't supporting my bills. So I switched over to pipe making and started taking classes from different artists like Marble Slinger, Scott Deppy, Dosher. Um, I've taken classes from Kabuki, a number of non-pipe artists as well, Mickelson, Gianni Tosso. And over the course of like six years where I just, I made it my goal where every other month I either traveled to an artist's studio to work with somebody new or I took a class. And after doing that for four to six years, um, I was still living in Washington. I decided to open up a studio called Montage Studios in Spokane, Washington. And one of my best friends, Brandon Welt, Brando Glass, um, manages the studio still. He owns it and manages it. It's still up and up up in operation, has 12 artists that work out of there constantly. Um, I moved away from Spokane to go to Seattle and work for a company called Swiss Perk in 2010. And that was the first time I'd had a job since I was a janitor. And it was quite the change from doing whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted to like to make these products and make sure that I was the prep boy. So I made sure that everybody in the studio had enough materials so that they could continue to work without a hiccup. So that way we could um, produce the most amount of product possible. And it was sweet because the Swiss perks were really fun because they were all, even though we were a production line, we still made everyone different. None of no two piece was ever the same, so it kept that hand blown original feel to it. Even though we were working on like an assembly line at that point in time, wow. um, 2011, I broke away and did a little bit of my own work for about six months. And I was living in Bellingham, Washington, at that time, working at a friend of mine's studio, Ivan, and. While I was working there, Scott Deppie approached me and asked me if I wanted to come work for the mothership, and I couldn't pass up an opportunity like that. It was working with some of the best guys in the country. Um, they're all old friends, so it was really great just to be able to finally to work in the same studio with them all. And I helped mothership start up the production line. I was one of I was the prep boy again, so it was whatever parts they needed me to make. I made those parts. And then I learned how to make the more advanced pieces as time went on because I wanted just my thirst for knowledge is really heavy, so I want to always try and be doing more. So I picked the hardest piece that we had on the production line, which was the Fabergé egg, and I put in my hard work and learned how to make that piece. Um, I produced a bunch of them in 2012 and 2013. They won the most innovative product of the year with that with the design of the fab egg so it was really cool to be a part of this wave of this um 
this company that was bigger than myself. And I just, you know, I worked my 40 to 50 hours. I worked 40 hours a week, and then I do overtime for myself so that I could always be pushing myself because it's like even if I'm getting doing my 40 hours a week for the production line, I still needed to get at least 10 to 20 hours a week for myself just to express my own creativity because even though I was blowing glass, I wasn't being exploring new avenues and being creative. Um, I stopped yeah. working for them in 2014, right about the be- like right at the first of the year. I decided that I wanted to go and try my own hand at it again. I had some ideas, and I spent a few months working at a friend of mine's place in Bellingham, Whitney Harmon. He's an amazing, awesome artist, and he gave me a space to work. And I spent three, four months developing my new style, like figuring out my new designs, how I wanted things to be. And then I took off on the road for about seven months and went all over the country. And at that time, I went up and down the West Coast, Denver. I went to every major city in the country that I thought I might want to live at because <laughs> they had a progressive glass because they had a progressive glass scene. Like if I was going to move out of my bubble, I wanted to move somewhere where there was like shit going on. Like people were doing <laughs> something. They were like, I wanted to be around movers and shakers that would push me to to do my all to do my best. Um, and I would help push them to do their best as well. Um, So it was was a fun little trek to go figure it out. And that's kind of what led into the Vagabond, how we got the idea for doing Vagabond. Um, 2014 was a fun year. I traveled all over. 2015, I got my first show, um, Emerald Gallery in Humboldt County um, in Arcata, California, actually asked me if I would do my first show. He's been one of my biggest supporters for years. And that was just like one of those opportunities I couldn't pass up. Um, Before that, though, in the beginning of 2015, I took another class. I took a two-month intensive study with Micah Evans. And that's where I got to kind of explore some new ideas and different designs, different perks different stuff like that. It was the first time pipe makers had ever gotten to have a class. There was the first time there was ever a pipe class at Penland School of Craft. Um, and they didn't even necessarily say, yes, you guys can have a pipe class. They just said, yes, you can have a glass blowing class. And a bunch of pipe makers showed up and we, we just had a, the way we presented ourselves and the way we presented the work it wasn't like a bunch of dreadlock Wookiees coming off a lot being like, look, we're making pipes in your studio. We like approached it as like, you want us to study history. And one of the things that's a very prominent is, you know, the tobacco pipe, the shape of a tobacco pipe is historical. So, so we went in on a whole study of like the whole class went in on a study of traditional tobacco pipes that all came from different regions of the world where we could we had to be able to say all of that. It was like, so when they came in and they were like, you guys just made a, you know, a marijuana pipe. And we're like, no, this is actually a traditional cabbage or um, the one that I made was a cavalier. That was an East Pakistani piece that was really popular in the 19th century. So when we were able to talk to them about where the pipe design came from, why it was designed like that and bring in the history of the tobacco pipe, they kind of changed their minds about 
what formats we could work on. By the end of the class, we were making, you know, full tubes, you know, <laughs> dab setups, all that. So it was it was a really fun experience. And That's fascinating. Right at the yeah. end of that, yeah, right at the beginning of that class, I got asked to do my first show. So I spent five months of 2015 getting ready for the show and when i did the show i came out with 49 pieces done with 43 different artists and the pieces had been made from north carolina to vermont all the way down into florida all i bounced around the country for five months just making pieces with different artists and we killed it the show did really really well I had an amazing lineup of different artists. It was called, we, we, the design I was working on was the wormhole. So we called the show Exploration of the Wormhole because it was about taking as many different artists as possible to extend their ideas on these pieces. So obviously uh, collabs are a big thing in the glass scene. Uh, you know, that's a lot of glass artists. Most glass artists, I would say, like to work with other artists on different collabs, on pieces, on series. Um, who, who are some of the major artists you've collabed with and who is your has been your favorite person to collab with? Um, uh, it's so hard. I've pretty much collabed with the majority of the big name artists that have been out for a while. Um, Banjo was really fun to collaborate with it with his energy is awesome. I just did a piece this weekend with Phil Siegel when I was down at the Armadillo project in Austin, Texas, raising money for meals on wheels. Um, that piece was really fun. We made a armadillo spirit animal and it was just really fun to bounce ideas off of. Um, <clears throat> it's a hard one to say who's, who's like my favorite artist to work with. And because the, one of the great things about most of the artists is we're all pretty like-minded. We got into this all for the same reason. You know, when we started doing this, there wasn't, you know, 16 years ago when I started blowing glass, there wasn't money involved or there was money involved, but there wasn't like, you know, there was the, Oh, you make a $5 spoon. Oh, you can make a $20 spoon. Oh, you make a $50 Sherlock, a $100 Sherlock. Oh, you can make bubbler. And then there were like the people who made tubes and they were like, you know, make bongs and stuff like that. So it was like, we didn't have the caliper of artists that we had when we got now that we did when we started. So a lot of us in the beginning, a lot of the old timers, we got into it just because we seen, you know, an old snotgrass piece on lot, or we've seen an old Hugh piece. I bought my first piece from Hugh, and that got me started. I was like, I was Bob Snotgrass's first apprentice. And when I got the piece, I was just instantly, like, mesmerized by it. It was like, all I wanted to do was smoke out of it and figure out how to make more. Like, I wanted to make them. And it took me about five years to get to there, but it happened. And when... You know, that's why I had a job as a janitor for so long was because there wasn't any money in it. You know, I was selling glass for other artists. Basically, I'd buy 10 pieces, sell eight of them, and get, like, two free pieces out of the gig. <laughs> and I wasn't trying to make money. I was, like, trying to get my collection bigger and bigger. So was it mostly so, the... So what originally attracted to you uh, attracted you to glass blowing was it the artistry was it the freedom was it the was it the the weed smoke were you a big smoker is that why was or was it just some combination Oh yeah I'm 
I was I'm definitely a big smoker and back in the day it was the guys who had the glass pieces were the heads. You know, you never saw some Chad or Joey walking around with this like super nice piece of glass because they couldn't walk into a store and buy it. The only place you could get this stuff was on lot if you knew a glass blower. You know, there was a handful of stores twenty years ago that were even thinking about carrying glass. Um, so like my first pieces I got at like a festival, like Oregon Country Fair, I got a piece in the parking lot. Because you weren't allowed to actually sell the glass in the fair because you'd get kicked out. So guys would roll the parking lot with their cases and that's how we would find them. So after meeting five or six artists, I then started buying pieces from them and doing the same thing in different regions. Like I would go up to Washington, out to Chicago, down to Tennessee, you know, out to New Mexico, spots where there weren't glass blowers yet. And, you know, a spot where there's like 500 to 1,000, 10,000 people showing up for festivals. And I would just hit the parking lot, roll around, dodge security guards and like, you know, but it was, that was what like got me so interested in it was like how to find these pieces. Like, you know, you would hear names of artists like Marcel or Scott Deppie or Banjo or Brock. And there's all these elusive people like you never knew who they were and you would see like one piece at a show from some from someone that that they made and it was like you know it was like collecting the rarest baseball cards you'd ever heard of <laughs> like yeah. for me because it was like i collected cards when i was a kid and then when i found glass i was like whoa i can collect an artist like i can get directly into this one artist and be like i like his work and then, but back then you couldn't find them. You would have to like hunt and search. And then when stores started selling glass, then it was fun because you could walk into a store and look at, look at pieces and then have like wish lists. Like I want to get that $2,000 <laughs> Scott Deppie. Like I remember saving up all my paychecks for like six months when I was working as a janitor and I was learning to blow glass too. And I walked into the store to buy this Pedro piece. I was so pumped, and it sold the day before I got there. Oh, so bummed! But <laughs> you know, the... it just gave me that. It just gave me that thrill of like when you have it, you have to get it right now. You can't skip on stuff. So I have a huge glass collection. Like I've been collecting glass longer than I blow glass, and yeah. that's how a lot of people I feel like even nowadays. I'm watching collectors get into it because they come in. They get into these pieces, they love them, and then they're watching people make them, and they're like, man, I'm a little bit creative. Like, I think I could do this. And it's cool because it's really fun to see everyone getting into it and creating new styles because the glasses came so long, so far. It used to be fume or, you know, you had some reversals or a or like a raticello, and now it's like you have clines and recyclers and, you know, there's so much stuff that's yeah. so much cooler, in my opinion. Speaking like, speaking about the I, different techniques, um, you, you had mentioned earlier, obviously, you, you put in a lot of hours and took a bunch of lessons and classes and stuff to, to get to where you are. What was, uh, would you say, was maybe the most challenging technique it, it was for you uh, to, to learn to master? I don't think I've mastered anything yet. <laughs> um, I'm still 
still going. Like one of my favorite things to work with is fume. It's my primary, like one of the primary techniques that I use because I love the variations of it. I love that it's always different. No matter how, like I, I try really hard to get things the same all the time, but sometimes you can't do that with the fume is it's like the inconsistencies to me are like the greatest part of it. Cause I'm, and then trying to learn how to make it consistent. Now I've gotten like consistent designs and patterns. And to me, that's like been one of the funnest things to try and master. Um, but then, but then there's also like, I don't know. I think one of the hardest things to do in my opinion is the drawing on glass. Um, drawing on glass to me is just blows my mind away. There's a couple of the guys that do it, um, you know, Scott Deppy started it, and then there's Punny that crushes it, and T-Funk, and WJC, and now we got new guys coming in, doing it all over, Hellraiser, and a bunch of guys that are just totally crushing the game when it comes to doing um, flip disc and filicello and drawing patterns from any type of sacred geometry to cartoon characters. I think that stuff, to me, is, like, some of the hardest shit. Um, yeah. I've yet to explore too deep into it because I'm not the best at drawing. I'm more more of a shape guy. I like shapes. Yeah. I like to explore different shapes and patterns and stuff. So. Cool. Well, we need to take a quick break, uh, but uh, don't go anywhere because we'll be right back with more from J.D. Mapleson here on Blazin. You're listening to Blazin with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. National Cannabis Industry Association presents the fourth annual Cannabis Business Summit and Expo, June 12th to the 14th at the Oakland Marriott City Center in Oakland, California. Register now at CannabisBusinessSummit.com. Meet industry leaders over three days of informative sessions and visit hundreds of vendors along the more than 80,000 square feet of sold-out expo floor. Hear from over 100 thought leaders headlined by feature keynote speaker, former president of Mexico, Vicente Fox. Join us at the epicenter of the cannabis movement sponsored by the industry's only National Trade Association, the fourth annual Cannabis Business Summit and Expo, June 12th through the 14th. Register now at CannabisBusinessSummit.com. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now. Bought a game for your phone, gonna make you say, wow! The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash. Go the seed, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash. Little by little, your empire goes large. Put the big celebrities inside your entourage. You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong. Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong. The name of the game is him, think that's the point. Download and play while you light yourself a joint. The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot-proofed by the man who run high times. Oh, yeah. Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Are you disturbed by the prescription medication commercials on television and their endless list of side effects? They go on and on and you end up having to take multiple pills to counteract the problems caused by the first pill. It never ends. Have you looked into CBD as a more natural option? 
At Saturn Ranch, we produce all-natural CBD topicals and THC-infused edibles. Premium lab-tested hemp-derived CBD is the most important ingredient in our products. From topical balms, salt scrubs, bath-soaking salts to tinctures and edibles, you're sure to find something to help. Family-owned and operated, we at Saturn Ranch believe in and use our products daily. Don't put anything on your body that you wouldn't put in your body. SaturnRanch.com Maui Wowie Acapulco Gold California Kush Our strains stretch everywhere too This is the Cannabis Radio Network Blazing with Bobby Black Alright and we are back here on Blazing uh, Our guest today is glass artist uh, J.D. Mapleson, uh, director of the documentary film Vagabond, The American Pipe Dream. So let's talk a little about the film now. Um, how long did it take to shoot and edit and get it all together? April of last year, I wrote up a proposal. So instead of doing a Kickstarter, I wrote up a proposal and I called up a bunch of shops from around the country and I raised up uh, enough money to cover the camera crew because so, I did the research on how much it would cost for travel expenses and food and lodging for three people to follow me for three weeks. So once I raised up my money um, in June, I think it was June 20th last year, we started filming. Um, and I had Galen Oates, Dylan, and Connor, Pyroscoptic is Connor's um, handle, um, come and we got together on the 19th, and Connor's really into the glass industry. Pyroscoptic is very heavy in the Philadelphia glass scene. He photographs um, a lot of people working constantly. He travels to all kinds of events and photographs people. So Dylan and Galen, when they came on board for the photography, they had no idea about the glass world. They had never been into a glass blowing studio. They had seen glass pipes. They smoked off glass pipes. But they had never watched someone make one. They didn't know that there was an industry and a community like ours out there. So it was a really great experience for them. They were really interested in the in it from the get-go because they knew nothing about it. Um, and when we started filming on the 20th, it was, it was a lot of fun because um, it was a new experience. None of us had done this before, and we were just trying to – figure out what exactly we wanted to do. And I had six artists lined up to come through my studio. Um, we had Ubatuba, AKM, Mad A, Brando, Itai, and Don Chili Ortega come through the studio. And after that, after four days of blowing glass, we went to Studio Alchemy because they had a big house party going on where Banjo had just finished up a class. And then Friday morning, we hopped in a, we got a big van and we hopped in the van and headed down to the Degenerate Flame Off at where 16 artists were competing. And it was a lot of fun. <clears throat> Um, what what's the degenerate flame off like? Can you tell us? It's is it is it similar to any other events that you've been to, or is it kind of an industry uh, insider thing? It's unlike any event um, out there. They get sixteen artists together to compete um, over the course of ten hours, and they have like 
they have a limitation of what they can bring for materials that kind of levels the playing field so everyone has a equal chance. And so on Friday, everyone gets together and you get to watch 16 artists blow glass. And there's a, you know, a bunch of booths there where you can go and get merch from different artists. You can go and buy colors from our color manufacturers. You can get tools from our tool makers. And there's some mu- live music going on. It's pretty fun. It's, it's one of my favorite events. Um, cool. Sadly to say, this year, this year in 2017, we didn't have it. Um, hopefully, we'll be back next year better and bigger. Um, there's just some new things and city ordinances that they have to deal with. Um, but it was really fun because you get to watch everyone compete for Friday. And then on Saturday, it's live demos all day long from like 20 to 30 different artists. So I was one of the demoing artists. So we brought the camera crew down and we watched everyone compete. We did interviews with people after we saw the winners. We all went out to Marcel's shop. And from there, we went down to Darby's Blue Glass with Darby and his son Caleb for a few days. Hopped an airplane on Thursday down to Huntington, where we worked with 14 artists at Ziggy's um, five-year anniversary, which was a blast. Um, Ziggy's is where I met up with you. That's where we got to meet. Yeah, well, you invited me over to yeah. check out the film. I got to get a little sneak preview before the official premiere, which was awesome. Thank you. And I was pretty impressed with it. So, okay, so you were at Darby's, and and, uh, that was one of my favorite parts of the film because, uh, you know, just showing the the family vibe and and how open Darby and his family were to you guys was pretty pretty nice to see. Yeah, Darby's place is awesome. We actually took the first day off just to go swimming. It It was nice to have a break, and then from there we did a bunch of work. And Darby's, he's just such an amazing guy because he's, such a family man. He has three boys and his wife. One of his sons works full-time in the studio. The other two are still in high school. So it's a lot of fun to see, you know, that whole family aspect of everything because, you know, we are, you know, most of most of these art, most of us artists are family guys. Like I have a 20-year-old. My daughter will be 20 next month or in a couple of weeks. So, um, wow. you know, it's the thing even though we are glass pipe makers, we still have families. We supported our families off this. So it used to be a lot harder than it is now. Yeah. Now, after Darby's and after Ziggy's, what, what was next uh, on the road trip in the film? Take us through the rest of it. Next, from there we went to Jag, just another glass blower. And he's been like one of my really good friends for a long time. And we travel a lot together, but we've never worked together. Um, on a project so we made my favorite piece from the film and kind of to me what the essence of the film really the piece represented the whole essence of the film where we made an american flag wormhole um but a whole set so it had an american flag money bags and american flag sherlock and american flag you know bong and little little shot glass slash q-tip holder and it was really sweet because it just really embraced that american pipe dream where it's like you go to school and you know the american dream that you're taught at school and what some people's family might teach them might vary from someone else so it was really cool to get everyone's different perspectives and for us as glass pipe makers it's like we were demonized 
you know, in 2003, the, you know, Ashcroft, the attorney general, set a bullseye on glass pipe makers and sent out Operation Pipe Dreams. And a lot of my friends got in trouble from that, and a lot of people lost their jobs. Tommy Chong did time in jail from it. And what we did was, as an industry and a community, we dove deeper underground, and we hid. I couldn't tell my landlord I was a glass pipe maker. You know, no one would rent to me as a glass pipe maker. I had, I was a glass artist. I made marbles and beads and I had to have this portfolio in order to show them. And then, you know, kind of hide behind this, you know, this image and be an artist when in reality I was just being a pipe maker. I was just doing what I wanted to do. But there was just those, you know, those terms that you have to put out there so people, will, you know, rent to you because it was yeah. hard back in the day when, you know, weed wasn't legal, you know, there was no med- there was some medical in some states, but not all states had medical. So a lot of the guys around the country still to this day work under kind of like a in a gray area. For the yeah, the bong, the bong was in. a dirty word. You weren't allowed to say the word bong. I remember <laughs> from uh, champs and from and from other places. It was the worst four-letter word that you could say in a head shop. Yeah. You could say any four-letter word but that in a head shop. And it's an amazing place where we are in history right now with everything. We have artists that are pushing the boundaries every day on what you can and can't do with the medium. So it's really fun to see, you know, Banjo going out there and creating these divvies, these huge pieces that represent, like, you know, a beautiful goddess surrounded in light but it's all represented through glass so it's a lot of fun and then um you also get to see shop companies like mothership and scott deppy that are and jake c that are just pushing the boundaries of function so heavy and quave he's you know these guys just they set the boundary every other month on like what is possible to be done with glass, you know, and it's really cool to, you know, have some of my best friends in the, in, you know, out there just creating work that every day I see, I'm just like blown away from them. It's yeah. Happening. I mean, I was blown away by some of the art that you sent me from the film to use in the article. Uh, we should mention that the glass, that the um, American flag series that you're talking about was actually on the cover of the uh, Green, uh, Greenleaf magazine uh, issue that we're talking about, which is out right now. And then, so, okay, so you did that with Jag, and then uh, and then the film ends at Chalice, uh, which is, of course, the big uh, glass festival, glass hash music and art festival put on by Hitman, uh, Doug and Hitman and all those guys in D-Rec. Um, tell us a little about yeah. your impressions of Chalice. Chalice is fun. This was my second year doing it, or that was my second year doing Chalice. I was at the first one. And this one, I really liked the layout of the venue. It was cool with the trees and the grass. San Bernardino, where the first one was, it was just, it's a parking lot. It was hot. It wasn't my favorite scene. So, um, yeah, so Chalice is a really great experience because it's music that everyone likes to listen to. And then you get this glass blowing so people can come out and meet all the artists. And then you get the hash competition. And for me as a heavy smoker, that's a great thing. It's like, I want to see who's you know, doing the biggest stuff with the hash industry, making the best, doing all that stuff. So it's fun to come out and watch and be a part of. And it's really cool because 
Um, this year for Chalice, there I'm sharing a 40 by 40 air conditioned tent with another company. I haven't quite figured out who yet, but I know it's going to be pretty big if they're making me share. Um, <laughs> where we're going to show the vagabond all weekend long at different times throughout the week, and we'll have a schedule so people can show up to the Vagabond Lounge at Chalice this year, and they can watch it for their first time oh, if awesome. they want. That's awesome. And it's in an air, yeah, it's in an air-conditioned tent, so that'll be really nice and comfortable for everybody. And on top of it, we're going to be showing the first glass pipe documentary, which was called which is called Taboo Glass, which was put out in 2003, which is mostly shots of old pieces, old classic pieces that really helped lead the way to the work that we're doing nowadays. It's really cool. For the time, it it was every day before I went into my studio and blew glass for probably a year I watched that movie. Like I, I listen to it and I can tell you what's on the screen. It's one of my favorites. So to be able to show that to everybody is really amazing. But we're going to cool. show Taboo Glass. Then we're going to show the second pipe film, Degenerate Art, which is the one Marble Slinger put out. Right, yeah. Which I can't even believe was six years ago. It feels <laughs> like yesterday. And then we'll do um, Vagabond. So it'll be on all three movies will be on a continual loop for all three days. So everyone can get tired of them if they want. <laughs> but it's just it's it's a nice spot. We felt a nice thing to do is to have like a nice air conditioned area that people can kind of get away from the heat. And when they come in, at any point that they come in, there's something about the glass world that will be on there from the past to the present. It's really important to remember the past and what we used to do and how this industry was formed. And, you know, it was formed through, you know, a lot of hard work from a bunch of people. And it's fun just to go back and see some of those pieces, some of those relics. So the film had it had its premiere on March 30th at the Chapel in San Francisco, right? So how how has the yeah. film been received so far by the people who have seen it, and uh, have have you have any plans to enter it into any festivals or or theaters around the country at all? So right now we did the Chapel, which was awesome because that was the not only that was it the first time for people to see the film, we also had all the work that was made along the road trip saved up, and we brought that out for everyone to view for the first time and purchase. Um, so there's a few galleries around the country now that have a couple of the pieces that were from the film. Um, we also released a book that had all the work from the film and then some photos from the film as well that we released that day as well. And so it was a lot of fun. The, the best part for me was the owner of the chapel, um, this gentleman, Jack coming up to me and telling me that, he had no idea what to expect with this film, and he was completely blown away. He's like, I don't smoke. I have no desire to smoke, but at the same point, at the end of this film, I want to watch more. He's like, that was really well put together. That was. He's like, I'm interested to see. He's like, do you guys ever have another event like this that you want to do? Let me know. He's like, I will gladly have you. And so that was that was a really big awesome accomplishment um from there i've done a bunch of viewings and the reception the what i've gotten back has been really well we did a viewing in portland um the week after the first viewing in san francisco where we did 24 hours notice and we pulled in 60 people 
for the viewing, and it was just a lot of, it was mostly just glass blowers and a few collectors, but it was a lot of fun. And it's really cool to see the artists and the people who are part of the industry, how well they appreciate it and they like it. It really makes me feel like I, I kind of nailed it on the head. All right. Well, uh, I, JD, I wish you uh, all the best with the uh, future airings of the film and anything else that you uh, choose to do with your production company, Borrowed Time Productions. Uh, once again, the name of the film is Vagabong, the American Pipe Dream. It will be playing at Chalice uh, and hopefully in uh, some theaters around the country. Uh, if you have a chance, go check it out. Uh, it's definitely worth seeing. Uh, JD, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us today. I'm blazing. Yeah, thank you again so much for having me. You guys have a wonderful day, and I look forward to seeing you at Chalice. You too, man. You too. Okay, guys, and that's about it for this week's edition of Blazin. Uh, follow us on social media, Facebook. Give us a like. Leave us some feedback, facebook.com slash with Bobby Black. Uh, you can also follow me, uh, my personal media accounts, uh, at Bobby Black on Twitter, at Bobby Black 420 on Facebook and Instagram. Um, we will be posting links to all the good stuff we talked about today on our Facebook page. Be sure to check that out. If you want to know more, you can also check out uh, GreenleafMag.com, uh, the latest issue of Greenleaf Magazine, which has my feature on J.D. Mapleson and the Vagabond movie, as well as some killer glass galleries and an interview with glass artist Darby Holmes. So be sure to check that out. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor of Blazing or if you have a product you would like us to review – please feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page or email us at blazin at cannabisradio.com. Next week, we're going to have a very special episode of Blazing. I will be uh, coming to you live from the Hitman Coffee Shop in Los Angeles uh, when I'll be interviewing another filmmaker, uh, Mr. Kevin Booth, the director of American Drug War and American Drug War 2, among many other projects. So don't miss that. It's going to be uh, pretty awesome. Uh, until then, this is Bobby Black saying... Keep on blazing, my friends. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. 